So today we continue with the uh, Xinjin Mei study discussion. A couple of you uh, may have not gotten the chance to, to hear, uh, to listen, or maybe were not here when we did the previous session. So we are picking up. You can go back afterwards and listen to what you have not listened to. This is session six, and we are abide not in dualistic views. So that paragraph. Abide not in dualistic views. Take heed not to pursue them. This is on page 20 for those who want to look in their sutra. Take heed not to pursue them. As soon as right and wrong arise, the mind is bewildered and lost. Another translation has it as duality appears in minutest traces. Carefully avoid the trap. If there is even an inkling of right or wrong in the enlightened, right or wrong, the enlightened mind ceases to be. So I'm going to read a little bit from commentary, Musong's commentary. The duality of self and the other is the basic split that causes us endless anguish. The use of, of the word carefully by Seng Tsan is important here in that it suggests a constant vigilance in the cultivation of mindfulness, an understanding of dualistic thinking and its long-term impact on the structure of consciousness is not a mere piece of information that we can tuck away someplace and retrieve it for a coffeehouse discussion. The dualistic thinking must be avoided in each moment and every engagement, without careful attention, it is all too easy to slide back without being aware of it. When the separated self disappears, then there is only the phenomena presenting itself to itself. These two must be remembered carefully in subsequent moments. Now, equanimity is itself the mind essence. Earlier, we noted that Seng Tsang is using this essence of mind as the original stillness. In that sense, mind essence is illuminative rather than substantive. All categories of dualistic thinking have their own trajectories and stresses, and eventually cover up the original stressless condition of mind. The original condition of the mind is equanimous, and this potentially continues to exist regardless of how many layers of traces cover it up. To access this potentially, this potentiality is to recover the original mind essence. So th this is talking about what we often often blind to, right? So now what he's saying here that even when we are blind to, it doesn't go anywhere. And when we become aware of it, it doesn't come from anywhere, right? So as he says here, it doesn't matter how many layers we have slapped on it, it's still as is. And when we, when we um, become aware of it, 
it doesn't appear from somewhere that is hidden. It's just that our attention and our grasping creates the sense of I cannot get in touch with, or I am not there yet, or I'm not that enlightened yet, right? So what he's saying here is that it's always available even when it's not available. It's always available even when it's not. Now, what, another thing that is important here is what he's saying at the beginning of the commentary is that this is not something we tuck away someplace and retrieve for a coffee house discussion. Also, not for having tea and discussion, right? So even that now, what we're doing, that, even that is way too much. And what we're doing now can essentially be a trap for us. Because we're sitting here, we're having some tea, some banana bread, and we are contemplating duality, right? Contemplating duality, right? So it is great for the, to amuse the mind. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about moment by moment, and he says that here. The moment by moment, all the time, cultivation, right? So he says, it suggests constant vigilance in the cultivation of mindfulness, right? So, and that's why Seng San uses the word carefully. Now, carefully means all the time. And another thing also to, to probably note here is that being vigilant does not mean being uptight. Because we think that's what that means, or maybe we react to it with some kind of uptightness. Or oh, this is putting pressure on me. But no, it's quite the opposite. The pressure is manufactured. And when we are careful about that, we actually again and again will discover a different way of being. Now, it begins with duality, right? So abide not in dualistic views, take heed not to pursue them. As soon as right and wrong arise, the mind is bewildered and lost. We become lost. So as soon as right and wrong arise, what does that mean? What does it mean as soon as right and wrong arise in the mind? Does it mean that we are practicing being blank? Does it mean that we become blind to differences? Does that mean that uh, wholesome and unwholesome don't matter, or the, uh, the discernment between wholesome and unwholesome is disregarded? How do, we, how do we understand this in a way that is conducive to our practice, also conducive to our functioning together as human beings, <clears throat> as, as Buddhist practitioners? So, anyone? Yes, please. I was going to say. Let's see if this is enough. This may be enough. Can you hear me? Can you guys hear me online? Okay. All right. So, um, actually, while while you were reading, while you, while Jimmy was reading the um, this passage, um, it it's pertaining directly to 
uh, what I'm going through at work and what I always go through at work, no matter what job I have, no matter what I do, is always this, am I doing the right thing? Um, do that, am I doing what they want me to do? Am I doing, um, is that right or, is, or am I right or am I wrong or are they wrong? You know, and it, it ends up to be like this dichotomy between, and then it's, a, it's an internal struggle to do my work. Whereas if I let go of they're right and I'm wrong, or they're wrong and I'm right, if I let go of that, and not, not to be blank, I think, I think to just to let go of that idea of it, when I feel that, when I felt that when you were reading, um, if I let go of that, then I'm able to direct my energy where it needs to be. So I'm wrong or I'm right. It doesn't matter because I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm learning from it. So I feel like I can learn from anything. So I'm wrong, you're wrong, right? That's, um, yeah, that, that's how we speak of it. That's how we think about it, right? I am right, I am wrong. We have to examine that statement, the way we uh, think about it and the way we speak about it, right? I am wrong is a lot more than something needs to be looked at here, right? I'm wrong is someone expressing being vested in something. That statement actually creates that someone. It creates and it fortifies it going forward. I am wrong or you are wrong, right? Saying you're wrong also creates me as the one who right, is right, right? Because I, you're wrong, I'm right, right? So the way we speak about it, the way we think about it is very important. And to be careful includes being careful in the way we speak of it or think about it, right? Every time we add that, we are creating a duality between self and other. That's how the duality is born and that's how the duality is maintained. So what does that mean in terms of right and wrong when, when you are not the one who is right and wrong? What does that do to functioning within uh, discerning between wholesome and unwholesome? Right? Or cultivating the ability to discern between wholesome and unwholesome. And to be effective dealing with job situations or whatever it is. What does that do? Does that free something? Does that free you? Yeah. I see what happens with uh, right or wrong is that we, I mean, at least every time I have that kind of... Uh, situation where you know the there is an encounter of people and then there is some sort of issue and that issue has people that believe they're right and wrong and the discussion arises what I feel that the bestness we bring to it is making the discussion not productive and the reason why I think it's making it not productive is because we're not discussing the real issue we're discussing the people we're discussing you. We're not discussing that, okay, the tea is cold, you know, so can we heat it up or, you know, and that's a very easy, I mean, your tea is cold is a completely different thing. 
because now I'm discussing the person, I'm discussing that your inability to make tea, or that person may feel that, and then you know, and so, so how we talk about it has to do with that, and the and the first, the first um, protection against that is how we talk about it, and and I believe most of us. I mean, I, I'm talking to myself. We are not very good at not at saying things the right way. We typically say way more kind of loaded with meaning than we need to. Um, and, and I think that's what we're talking here. I mean, like, it's not about the, the tea being cold or cold for me. It's more about, um, you know, best, being bested on, this is how the right tea needs to be, and this is not what you're doing. And then that bestedness creates a lot of situations that are, we are starting to defend each other. And, uh, and it's amazing how the conversations go to literally hell. <laughs> you know, every time you start with those conversations where, you know, there is a, um, an idea of you are wrong. And so the person starts defending itself and then it's attacking you and then you defend yourself and then kind of continues. Um, dropping that, in my opinion, has been great when you can do it. And I think, you know, that permanent attention is the key of it, that, that carefully or take heed is the key of it because the more, the more we are aware of it, the more faster we can drop that. And the moment one person drops it, the discussion mm-hmm. changes. You know, it doesn't, you know, it's amazing how you say more creation by that. Like we chant, you know, like you just drop it and the whole thing drops. And so, I don't know. I mean, that's how I interpret that carefully and that kind of right or wrong. It's not about the issue, it's about the bestness on, and you were saying it, you know, the I um, or the you are. Right, so what he's saying here, using Seng Chan's uh, words, do not abide, this is what you're saying. It's, it's not, not discussing, it's not abiding. Yes, it's, not. it's it's knowing how to not abide when having a conversation, right? It's knowing how to not abide in dualistic views, and to abide in dualistic views is to speak from someone who is holding on to something, or is protecting something, or is afraid of losing something. That's dualistic in essence, and it creates. It fort- again fortifies, so it comes from dualistic view, uh, mind, and it fortifies duality. So at the end of the discussion, we we may feel even more convinced that there is someone there to protect, rather than start to dissolve that. So a discussion about duality can strengthen duality. For example, so Gyoku. Um. So when. So when I'm not a, totally attached to being right or wrong, it could be either one, um, it's like there's an understanding also that I don't know everything about the situation. I don't know everything about the other person. There may actually be information that I don't have, factual information that would change my views. And so there's um, right. a little curiosity. Yeah, it can what open is up. What's happening here? What is bigger yes. than than what just seems to be being said or thought. Yes, so you said, I don't know everything about the situation. 
I never know everything about the situation. Nobody does. No. Ever. Ever. That's not a possibility. Right. But I know, I study the subject, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, there is much greater unknown than known. Right. For everyone. And there are energies in the background that we're never going to be aware of. And calm extremes. Who knows how far they go? Right? It's not so cut and dry, black and white. I know because I am an expert. What does it even mean to be an expert? Right? So that's very, that's very uh, helpful, right? I, I don't know everything about the situation. Neither do you. <laughs> Maybe that's what I want to say. <laughs> More than the first part. <laughs> But, uh, but it's, just, it's just true. So, anyway, Connie, uh, we'll see if uh, you may need to raise your voice or we will bring you the microphone. <laughs> okay, can you guys hear me? On Zoom? Can you guys hear me on Zoom? Yeah, okay. Okay, great. When I um, think of right and wrong, I'm making a judgment. And kind of similar to what Sugyoku said, I don't know the other person's viewpoint. I'm not respecting their viewpoint and where they're coming from. And I guess to me, the, the solution to that is, is tolerance. So when I catch myself you know, thinking this is right, this is wrong for another person, I feel like I, I need more tolerance. I, I try to step back and and like you said, I don't know. Maybe I need to ask questions or just honor their perspective. So, Santi Paramita, right? The perfection of forbearance, right? The ability to, to, to bear witness. That includes patience, right? The cultivations of, cultivation of patience. Lifelong cultivation of patience. That's what we're talking about, yes. Which means create more and more and more and more space. Or whatever we see, we should note, I have space for that. For that or for him or her or them. I have space for that. Mm -hmm. I have space for that, but I may not always feel it and, and, and get in, be in touch with it. So, so it's on me to get in touch with that not on you to change your behavior. You want to say something first? No. Because I heard your voice. Um, mm -hmm. No, while you were speaking, Connie, it was really interesting. I, I felt like, um, so this, this that I have at work um, is very, uh, is not the same for the, obviously not the same for the kids, right? So I was thinking about the forbearance um, that I have for the kids and how I'm able to, when they say something, that might be totally off, right? Might be, right? But I can, I have the ability with them, with the younger crowd, to say, that's interesting, tell me more, you know? But when I encounter adults <laughs> in the workplace, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, you know? So it's very discriminating. It's very discriminating, mm -hmm. this, you know, and I choose who to have forbearance with instead of just letting things flow the way they need to. 
So that's difficult. That's a challenge. Well, we are talking about right? Everything we talk about, yeah. we talk about in terms of being, it being unconditional, mm-hmm. it being not intermittent. We all are intermittently doing different aspects of practice. That's not that difficult. I think it's interesting though that with kids, it's just, you feel a totally different energy. Depending on the kid. Huh? <laughs> Depending on the kid. No, but often, often I'm, I'm able to tap into their not knowing energy. Right. And it's truly and genuinely not knowing. Whereas adults are like, yeah, I know, you know, but I'm not going to say it. You know, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Sorry. Uh, anyone on Zoom uh, has any uh, comment, question? We're good? Okay. Before we move on to the next paragraph, anyone here wants to add something to that? Okay, okay. All right, next. Two come, comes from one. Hold on not even to one. Right, and this is, you know, the first way he says here before that, abide not in dualistic views does not mean abide in unity. Abide in one. Right, so it's not that we go from two to one and then we're gonna grasp one. Because grasping one is still grasping and that could be a trap, it becomes a trap. So two comes from one, right? The, the many come from same essence. Watch, be careful and not grab onto that as well. When not even one thought arises, all dharmas are flawless. Free of laws, free of dharmas, no arising, no thought. Everything there is comes from oneness, not translation. Everything there is comes from oneness, but oneness cannot be described. Right? That's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's an open way to see that, right? Oneness cannot be described. And, and describing something or, or wanting to define it is, in a way, wanting to know how to grasp, right? I want to I want to explain it to myself so I know how to. Where do I hold this, right? There's there's got to be a, a a place to hold this. From where? Which direction do I look at it to find that uh, handle, basically, right? And what is and the mind wants to grasp. That's how the mind grasps because it defines. If the mind cannot define, it cannot grasp. That's why we have such difficulty often with living things undefined. Because we don't know what to do with it. Or how do I communicate with that? What he's saying is that it cannot be described. Holding any trace of it in the mind is to deny the essence of emptiness. Also, another translation, when the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. It ceases to exist in the old way. Then commentary, as we have seen earlier, there's, there have been any number of Buddhist designations to describe what the Taoists mean by the one, or oneness, or shunyata, Buddha nature, Buddha mind, no mind, one mind, mind essence, 
even zero. When we begin to explore the roots of multiplicity, we need to take great care that we are not simply trying to find a source to which we can, we can attach our separate self and have a sense of becoming, quote unquote, spiritual. spiritual. The root, the source, the one are also zero and also zero, shunyata. Any attachment to the one as self-validating, self-sustaining phenomena does not, does have, will inflict grave injury to the spirit of inquiry. It's a nice way to say that, right? It injures the spirit of inquiry to the possibility of radical transformation. So inquiry to the possibility of radical transformation. Right or it basically goes against opening up. It closes us further, right? And again, it doesn't matter. Like we often say, it doesn't matter which cocoon we crawl into, right? How does it look like on the outside? A cocoon is a cocoon, and a cocoon becomes our self-definition, a part of our self-definition. In the Bodhisattva model of the Mahayana, the aspiration to Buddhahood requires emerging from the ghost cave of emptiness, and this is holding on to the one, and functioning in the world with Avalokiteshvara's helping hands, the many hands, the many implements of Avalokiteshvara, or Kanzeon, or Kanon. By offend, Sengtsan here means the myriad habitual negative reactions that arise in responses to aversion. Now, who cannot relate to that? Right? The myriad habitual negative reactions that arise in response to aversion or triggers, right? Taking offense is a psychological function of the ego which is itself rooted in the dramatic sense of self-importance. So egocentricity. I think we need to admit that we are egocentric. Right? I mean, I think this is a very important, um, should be a requirement to enter a spiritual path, is to admit to oneself that we are that way, that we act self-centered, that we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about ourselves. And our actions actually uh, come from that, right? Because our actions will follow self-centeredness. We spend a lot of time thinking and talking about ourselves. So look at it. And if you're defensive about that, <laughs> then look at that, because that, that just fortifies it. But when one does not cling to anything, one also does not react <coughs> negatively to anything. Does that sound possible? When one does not cling to anything, one does not react negatively, negatively to anything. Why? Because we're not attached to anything, we're not, then there's nothing to defend, right? If somebody said, you're, you are 
well, I don't know which word to use, <laughs> but some word that triggers you, right? So you have lost or you are, um, you have failed or, uh, you know, you have not, what you've done in your life did not amount to much or whatever, whatever it is that is bad for us, right, personally. How do we react to that? Or one gives you the finger, right? How do you react to that? Right? How quickly do you want to react in defensive way? Right? And when you want to react in defensive way, is there any examination there or that's it? That's the end of the examination. I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to say something. Because that, that becomes the knee-jerk reaction. And then when we react this way, there is no more, uh, as he says here, there's no more exploration, examination, or curiosity. Because we think we know. Because we think we know that there is something to defend. And the defensiveness creates something to defend. Because without the defensiveness, there's nothing to defend. So, the, the, one thing, the one important thing is that we have to again and again realize how much power we have, how much power is created through thought and speech, definitely actions, but also thought and speech. The way we think, the way we speak has tremendous power over everyone, especially over ourselves. Because we hear it. So, but you know, when again, but when one does not cling to anything, one also does not react negatively to anything or protects anything. One sees the world of emptiness clearly and compassionately in its multiplicity and responds only in useful, skillful ways. So it becomes, uh, as Dakia was talking about, it becomes about the situation at hand and not about me or you. Or not about me a part of you or you a part of me. Because that's what, this is the duality we protect. So when we look at the situation, we become more effective. That's one. Two, we work on dissolving the fortified, fortified separate sense of self. So two things happen. We become more effective and we, we, we release the grasp, the grasping hand a little bit. It happens all at once. Because the defensiveness creates harm and fortifies itself. Not defending and looking at the situation does the opposite. Goes in a different direction. When equanimity is firmly grounded in the zero-ness of all things, the world of multiplicity loses its power to confuse or disturb. Why? Because we don't see it as something opposing anything, right? Multiplicity does not oppose the one. Multiplicity is the way the one shows up. So when I see you, I see another version of me showing up. Right? I mean, that's what that means. Whatever I see, if, yes, it's easy when I like it, but when I don't like it, when you act in ways that cause harm, I see another 
way, another way I manifest and cause harm. It's not you that is causing harm as much as when we are lost, we cause harm. When we disconnect from the source. So, of course, that naturally invites compassion. Right? It's compassion to oneself as everyone. So that's why the multiplicity, the world of multiplicity loses its power to confuse or disturb because it's not seen as dualistic or from the dualistic mind. This is not to say that one loses all capacity for seeing the suffering in the world. It's important to note. To the contrary, the Bodhisattva dedicates his, her life to doing precisely the opposite the hunger of a child, the various human-made holocausts, the social injustices, the biological pain of each existence all evoke the compassion of the Bodhisattva. Yet this evocation does not come from a place of taking offense because there's nothing there fixed to, be, to, be, to take offense. Right? There's nothing fixed. There's nothing dualistic apart of or separate from what we are talking about or what we're seeing or the person we're helping. Rather, the Bodhisattva sees all such situations of suffering as unwholesome and employs whatever skillful means he or she can muster to address the situation. In other words, there is no personal anger in the Bodhisattva's response to situations of suffering. And we do get pissed off. How can somebody behave in such a way? Now, what happens to that, right? Our anger just, it basically makes the pile of suffering larger. So I'm just going to dump my own suffering on the suffering I'm complaining about. How's that going to help? My own anger. Only a skillful response balanced by wisdom and compassion, right? So that's what he's saying. The Bodhisattva responds to situations of, of suffering. Only a skillful response balanced by wisdom and compassion. So what do we think about that? <laughs> well, we're going together. How's that? So <laughs> we encourage each other. But this is, uh, thank you for that statement. This is a good point because it can sound, it can sound like an impossibility. Well, I'm not there, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I am. So when we read that, we can feel even more stuck, right? But that's not what it's, because if we turn to I feel stuck, again we fortify duality. This is not saying you have to do that at that level. There are no levels. There is no you're there or you're not there. There is no incremental progress to get there. You either practice it today or you're not practicing today. And if you're not practicing this, you're practicing 
the opposite. Because if you were not practicing giving, we're practicing stinginess. Or if we're not practicing wisdom, we're practicing stupidity. Or whatever we call it. So it's a matter of practice rather than a matter of becoming something, acing something, mastering something. Or reaching some idea of a, a number. This cannot be... When you read it and you think about it in a way of quantification, you're not seeing it clearly. You're only seeing the way you think about it. Because the, the mind works in very systematic way of hierarchies. Right? Everything is numbered. Everything is, everything is organized in such a way. It's good for functioning, it's terrible for wisdom. If that's the only way we see reality. Wisdom does not have organization in it. Or it has organization that is beyond logic, we, we can say that. It does have. But it's an organization that is beyond our ability to grasp or understand. Definitely defined. Right? And that's what we want to do. We want to define it. So when we, we encounter the mind that says, I can't do that. I'm not there yet. That gives us a clue to where we need to direct our attention and what we may need to dissolve a little bit. Right? I have a lot of work. is good. But I can only do this work today. Right? Isn't that a relief? I can only do it today. I can only do it now. Well, that's great. I can do the best I can now. When you think about the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, first of all, it's imagined. Second, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You can only be awakened or practice awakening today. Just raise the volume a little bit. Um, sometimes it's easier with uh, some situations to be generous and compassionate than it is with others, you know? Um, I, uh, last Friday I had a, a, a student. It's not even my student. I was just passing by and, you know, I got pulled into a conversation and she seemed like in so much pain because she's on, I guess, on a spiritual search and uh, she was saying how she felt very lonely because she didn't have anyone to talk to about what's coming up for her and what she's experiencing and you know because i've been there in that in that space i was like oh my god i know how she feels you know because i not that long ago i felt the same way so it was so easy for me to say you know come here you need a hug and you know i you can talk to me you know, because I, I felt the same way at one time. And it was like, it was a connection there of uh, this total stranger that I didn't even know. She wasn't my student. She's, you know, one of the other teacher's students. And, and then uh, I have another situation where, you know, um, somebody did something that, uh, you know, ruffled my feathers and I was like, no, she should know better and stuff like that. And 
you know, I withheld that compassion and I feel like, you know, let her sit with that for a little bit so that she could see and feel, you know, that her actions, you know, have consequences and stuff. And, you know, I got comfortable with that feeling of her feeling that and now I, I, I have to go reach out and say, okay, I think it's time that we gotta talk. But mm -hmm. it was so easy in this situation, but it wasn't so easy in this one, right? So, yeah, picking and choosing sometimes and, and, and you know, being a little bit prejudiced about who you want to give that compassion to and who do you feel that, oh, that's not an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. It has happened before. So it's not, it's, it's difficult to be that easy to jump into and say, yeah, I forgive you, yes. Smack me a couple times again or, you know, whatever, you know. Turn the other cheek, you know, keep doing it, you know. Eventually, you'll change. And I feel like it's not that kind of thing. It's like, I have to learn how I'm going to approach that a little bit differently. Right, so the cultivation, right? So what we talk about in this case is the cultivation of uh, upaya, right? Skillfulness, right? So, yes, I, I may be more skillful in such situations, right? Well, because it's a little bit more flowing or whatever, or I feel more comfortable, or I feel more at ease. In other situations, my upaya needs some work. Needs some work. Right? Which is what we're talking about, right? So we're not talking about doing or not doing. We're talking about cultivating, right? So it's not black and white. It's not good or bad, I'm bad at it as much as examining a situation and asking one, you know, what is the best or the most skillful way to meet this moment, right? And then examining, am I starting to become vested in me? Is it starting to become about me? I'm the one who doesn't have any more patience for you, right? Or do I need, or am I um, examining it in, in terms of curiosity, right? I'm okay, there's something I, I'm not seeing here, right? There's something I'm seeing here. I need to look. I need to change the angle, my view. I need to maybe rise above it for a bit so I don't get caught up in the mud, right? Right, it does get, well, this is where we function, within the mud. But, but it's a question of cultivation. So we call it again and again, a practice. I'm okay. Mm? No, I'm okay. Thank you for that. Anybody on, on Zoom? I think, you know, what you just said about Baia and uh, how it applies to Meisho, which Meisho was talking, is, is key because uh, you know, we also tend to have kind of a fixed idea of what compassion is, you know, and, and we can be mistaken in what, you know, what is, I mean, compassion should arise from that selflessness, meaning whatever I'm doing, it doesn't include the offended self, it doesn't include the anger or the fear or whatever that defends something that we are doing. So... If, if it comes from there, you know, compassion can show, I mean, can be different actions that not necessarily are always the same. I mean, not always the compassion is about giving a hug. I mean, sometimes the compassion may be like, okay, you know, this is something we, you know, you need to separate yourself from that person for a while. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean 
that that's not the real action, you know, if, if it's not working, because I mean, like, not always it's going to show up in the same way. I don't think, I think, you know, we overdo these ideas of what the good things are, and we kind of make them fixed sometimes. And, and we believe that being nice is something that is all around, and, and then there is a, always about the same response, and it's not about the same response, it's about the upaya, and how the response meets whatever is going on. And, and the subtlety there, though, is who, is who is acting that? And that's the difficult thing, you know, like, yeah. how do we... Yeah. I mean, when, when, when it's like, okay, yeah, this person needs to learn how to talk yeah. to... I mean, and is, is that talking who? Who is teaching this person a lesson? And so it, it, that is kind of where it, where it needs to be looked at and, and how the upaya responds. I mean, I, and I think you know, that's the key. Upaya, it, it's, it's key. So we don't get hung up into, into the names of things, or to be compassion, or into being nice, or into being a good practitioner, or, or whatever name we put to it. So, right, so you mentioned the word compassion, and, it, and um, it's, it's good to look at it <clears throat> Differently the way we look at it, because we're, tr we're trying to evaluate it, we're trying to define it, but essentially what we're talking about is, is undefined, right? Is undefined, wide open, unknown, right? Now, leaving it open, unknown, then it shifts it away from the need, our desire and need, perceived need, to have an idea of what we're talking We don't know what it is, which shifts the attention to the situation, not to the mind, away from the thinking mind, into life itself, right? What is compassion? I don't know, let me take a look. That's, this is where the answers are not, we don't have answers, they are born in front of our eyes. We don't have answers. We have capacity to meet moments, but there are no answers because everything is changing all the time. Well, you know, the answer I have Maybe it was okay a minute ago, but now it's no longer, or maybe it's slightly, um, it doesn't fit, right? And what I try to do is force my ideas and answers, what I know, onto situation. And then, of course, we run into, one second, we run into clashes with reality again and again. Why? Because I have answers, and somehow reality doesn't understand that I have answers, or you don't understand that I have answers, right? So you have to match my answers. That's the demand. And that's what we mean by self-centeredness, right? I mean, who, who doesn't, we all do it. Sometimes we're more aware of it than other times, but we all do it, right? We try to force ourselves onto reality. We become so rigid. And it's one of the things that we all work with, right? I mean, you know, especially as, Dharma teacher, this is what we work with. Rigidity. It's all that. There is rigidity of self, rigidity of mind. I know and I don't know. Same thing. Right? I don't know also, depending on how we, we, we uh, work with it, because I don't know can be fortifying yourself in the same way that I know can. Because I don't know and I need to know, Right? That's what that means. I don't know and I'm not good because I don't know. <coughs> what if I feel like I'm not meeting expectations? 
Who's expect? Okay, we can't do no judge by any standards. I know. What does that mean? I'm, I'm not, okay, don't just chant it, <laughs> practice it. Do not judge, but then you know what we say? Other people oh, judge. I'm judging me. Right, they judge. I'm not judging, but they judge me. Well, that's, this is what we say. I'm just minding my own business, and then other people get in my way, and, they, and I bump into them. I'm just going straight. Why are you here? Isn't that what we say? I'm just, get out of my way. I'm Moses parting the sea. No, but I don't want them to get out of the way. I want, them to, I want to take them by the collar and just be like, what do you want from me? Be honest with me. You know, but other people aren't going to be that way or that forthcoming or that present, presentable. You know? I don't mean presentable. I mean, like, they're not going to show you what they want. They're going to hide what they want and then fault you for not meeting their expectations. That's another version of you. Those people, this is what we're talking about, seeing others as oneself. Dogen, last Sunday, I think I quoted, right? So seeing others as oneself, the wise see others as themselves. Fool thinks they're someone else. The, the wise see, see themselves in everyone, mm-hmm. right? Fools, us, think we are someone else. The wise see themselves in everyone. Not only in the ones that I like, not only the ones that behave the way I want them to behave. Everyone is everyone. Right? And we don't, of course we don't like that. Yeah, Raison. I think our, our minds are dedicated, um, first of all, to creating ourselves. Right? Our minds, as we go through the world, um, see what is successful and not successful, and that's accumulates over the years to create our minds the way that they are. Um, and then our minds are dedicated to protecting ourselves. And this can take all sorts of different forms, uh, including anxiety and other sorts of things. I was watching a show last night about an organ competition and this very high level professional musicians. And this one guy was so anxious um, and the anxiety seemed to be, you know, protecting himself so that if he didn't win the contest, it was going to be okay because I was anxious, right? And so he's sitting at the organ ready to play, and, and the page turner is sitting there, and he says to the page turner, slap me as hard as you can, <laughs> and bam, you know, and the guy said, oh, great, because right? that got the anxiety out of his head, and then he could play, and he ended up winning. Um, but um, mind, all this crazy stuff that's going on, in some sense, protects us. And um, one of the things that I've been looking at a lot over the last few years, um, I come from old, old Puritan nonsense, and part of that is self-righteousness, right? It's my inheritance to be self-righteous, and so I've been glorifying in it for years. Um, And it's such a a burden, because it it just prevents us from being in the moment or even realizing that the moment is there because this moment doesn't mean anything because I know these people and I know everything before the moment even arises and the only existence of the moment is as an example of something else mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. taking the moment as the only thing that there is. Um, you know, the, they're doing this to me now because they are 
that kind of people, or because they've always done that, or because whatever. Mm. Um, and getting into the moment, however we can get ourselves to do that, um, really seems to be the key over and over again, right? That um, whatever is happening in the moment, it's only happening now. If these people are bastards who always do that, well, they're not, because they're only doing this in this particular moment, and we don't really know whether they're bastards or not, even though we have this strong mental thing saying they are those horrible people who do these things all the time. Um, and the more we can get into the moment, then upaya becomes possible. Uh, upaya is not possible unless you're in the moment, because upaya only exists in the moment. Upaya is seeing what the situation is and what can be done, not what could be done you know, last year or what we hope is going to be done a year from now, um, but what can be done right here in the situation. And the self, the more you get into opaya, the self becomes less and less significant because it's not you, the glorious self, the self-righteous, you know, the Puritan with the buckles on Thanksgiving. Um, it's not you doing these things, it's what the moment demands has to be done and what you can bring to the moment to do it. Right? Um, none of that's easy. Um, when the bastard cuts in front of me on the highway, it's a bastard cutting in front of me who you know, should obviously be castrated or something else. Um, and maybe oh, that will make him behave better. Um, but um, you know, the more I can get into the moment and say, you know, oh, bad day for that person. Um, you know, maybe they're going through a divorce, uh, their kids don't love them, and that's what they end up doing, driving on the highway. Right. Um, but the more we can get into the moment, that seems to be the key. And that makes Upaya possible, and then the self becomes something that is tied up with what's happening rather than this independent thing. Right, and the portal is exactly those moments that we feel that contraction and that desire to retaliate and define, right, and call names or whatever the mind is saying, that's, that, that's the entry point, right? Because there is no other entry point, right? This is the moment, right? So at that moment, what you, what you say, you know, we can change it to being more compassionate, right? To say, well, you know, I don't know what's going on in this person's mind. But what I do know is that when we are bitter, when we are misaligned, we are bitter, when we are bitter, we can act in such ways that are very harmful. I know, because I know that I've done, maybe not this way of harm, but other ways of harm, right? So when to study, to study oneself, to understand oneself, is to understand how everybody functions. We don't just study, yes, our own sufferers, well, my version of suffering, right, is very unique, which in terms of details is true, in terms of mechanism is universal. Yeah, so Dogen studied the self. Yes, right. that, but when you understand that, you understand everybody. You don't understand the details of their story. You don't need to. You understand the drama-making mechanism. You understand attachment. And you understand why people behave the way they behave. Again, not the details, but the, the mechanism of that. My, my jokes drive so... <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, and then, and then I think, so that's why studying oneself can lead to, or can be a catalyst for, for uh, further compassion. Mm -hmm. We become more compassionate to other people when we are more honest with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Often we're not. 
because I have reasons to act this way, right? Because I'm justified. He's not, or she's not. And again, you know, the mind of duality. So here's the moment, right? So, so instead of, def you said defending before, instead of defending, what we should be maybe uh, um, curious about, what happens when I don't defend it? I've been defending it all my life. It doesn't work, right? Because there will be somebody who will come and cut me off or call me names or whatever, right? What happens when I don't defend it? We can be curious about it. What happens when I don't speak of myself in such ways? Or think of myself in such ways? What happens? Right? At least we, we start to move in such direction and it opens things up. So, I think we need to observe the fears. Yeah. Well, I was thinking on, on what Miyomi was saying about you know, the other people judging her. And, and ultimately, what we defend there arises, you know, like I, mean, I felt that situation with many others, you know, not in the school, but, you know, the mechanisms are the same. Right. And, uh, and ultimately, it's my fear of, of, you know, seeing, I mean, losing some status, losing some, you know, people don't liking me. Um, whatever it is that I fear that I'm going to lose. Uh, and if we start looking into that, we can see how, how it is, you know, it can be more dissolved than if you only look into, into the sensation itself. You know, the sensation doesn't have, you know, that information sometimes. But right. if you relate it to, I mean, why am I defending this? I mean, what, what is, where is that coming from? It's typically from some fear, some deep, uh, something that worries us. And, and it, I found that every now and then when I look into something that, one of those fears and I look deep into it, it's a very, uh, very stupid fear. You know, it's a fear of something that is like, even if it happens, it doesn't matter. You know, like, and, and but, but it's kind of layers and layers and layers of things and I'm defending that and I don't even know what I'm defending. You know, like I'm defending the fear of something that is like, oh, I fear that, you know, I don't know, something super bad will happen and it, there is no possibility of that happening or at least no really good possibility and I'm still defending it anyway. Well, defending it, right, the fear arises from trust. I trust that this is what I need to defend. It's, it doesn't begin by defending. No, no, no. It's I trust that this is who I am and I trust that you are here to, you are a threat to that. Right? But it begins with trusting my own self-definition. And in, a relation, in connection with that, it is a trust in, in, in a dualistic way of being and thinking. That's why he's saying you got to be careful with that, right? Or, or, or careful examination. It's trusting dualism. Right? Because when we trust something, we're all going to defend it. And there will be fear of losing what I trust to be me. So when we say, well, I don't trust this, you know, people say, well, I know I don't trust the practice. Well, there is no option of trusting or not trusting. Everybody puts their trust in something. Yes. Right? So you're going to have to uh, serve someone. And maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, right? Remember the song? Right. Yes. Okay. So you are serving. And whatever you're serving, you will, in, in, this, in this case, what you talk about, you will defend. 
because you are serving it. I see the task is, is looking, what are you serving? I don't think we, we are aware. We are aware of the No, anger. we're not. We're, we're not. aware of the anger, we're aware of the anxiety, we're aware of this and that. I mean, that guy, for instance, he was losing this organ competition. And so what? I mean, he was super anxious about losing the competition that he was capable of winning because he won. But then, if he loses, I mean, what happens? He's, well, yeah. he, he's completely convinced that the whole world will collapse. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's, it's not true. And if that happened to everybody, that okay, you know, something that you wanted didn't come through, and nothing really happens, you know. Um, so that's the fear. I mean, and, and the defensiveness is intense to that point. Because it feels very real, the threat. Yeah, but the winning is extremely harmful in that case. See, the winning is harmful. Totally, because this person winning doesn't really let him explore the fact that he's dropping to that. I mean, next time he needs to win again because I'm already won. The winning... Am I, am I better? Yeah, it, it, it strengthens the fear. Totally. The more I win, the more I have to lose. I can lose. That's why we have to let it go, empty out completely, be nobody. Then you got nothing to lose. Whatever you think you are, whoever you think you are, that's what you are defending. Whatever you think you are. So be nobody, then you're free. You want to say, we have to uh, start to wrap it up. I want to... Finish the commentary. Do you want to say something or you want to I just, sit on it? Know. Maybe I'll, I don't know. Expectations are hard. Yeah. Well, see what that does to it. Yes, quickly. <coughs> well, do also, supposed to do. the self can be just as dedicated to failure as to success. Totally. Right? And uh, yeah. no matter how many times you win, it wasn't genuine that I won. I really should have lost. Right. And so the opposite can also be true, right? That there's no positive sign that can possibly show you that you are good enough or that you are um, supposed to deserve these things or whatever. So that, can also, that sort of self can also be there and is another self that needs right. defending. Well, it's the dualistic, I mean, going back to, to it's the, the, the commitment to the dualistic, the self that's good or the self that's bad or whatever it is, it doesn't right. matter. But there aren't, there, aren't no, there, there aren't enough thumbs in the world that will satisfy that. Thumbs up, right? There aren't enough thumbs to satisfy the self. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Either up or down, doesn't matter. It's never, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And, you know, I mean, it's not like, well, yeah, it doesn't work because Seng San said so or because somebody said so. We, we tried, the Buddha said, don't tr believe what I'm saying, try it. Or at least look at your life, the way you lived your life up to now and just make your own conclusions. You realize it doesn't work, why do you keep doing it? Somebody came to the Buddha and asked him, you know, I understand the teaching, I, I know everything, you know, I read a lot, I, I practice, why do I still do it? And the Buddha told him, because you still trust it. Why do I still do all those things that cause me misery and suffering? Why, although I understand the practice and the Dharma and Buddhist teachings, why do I still do it? And he said, because you still trust it. It's very powerful, right? Because you still put your, your trust in that. It's not because of other people. Because I trust this. So it's radical. I, I want to, we're going to wrap it up, but I want to uh, finish the 
commentary on that because I think it's very important and to the point. So this is on the line, and when thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. Uh, that, yes. Uh, what he's saying is the Buddhist meditative traditions talk about training in the, in the uprooting of defilements or unwholesome states of mind, the kleshas. This uprooting is a deconditioning of the conditioned mind. Right, so we talk about dissolving something, right? Um, yeah, dissolving the construct. The process can be long or short, painful or relatively painless, depending on the person's karmic proclivities. It involves both a perpetual and relational shift. Now, the karmic pro proclivities, right? So we don't choose, we, we, this is what well, we did not, up to this moment, we don't have a choice over that. We may have a choice of how we meet the karma, how we move forward, but today we don't have a choice over what kind of karma or karmic streams we have to work with. That's not a choice, right? That's why an enlightened person does not ignore karma, right? Uh, pai Chang. It involves both perpetual and relational shift. After all, our perception of a thing is integral to our relationship slash reactivity to it. Our perception of a thing is integral to our relationship or our reaction to it. That's where it's born. The way we react to situations, the way we meet life, or the way we meet karma. Ceasing to exist in the old way then is the end of reactivity put into place by an endless series of preferences of likes and dislikes. I don't like when they behave this way. I don't want them to ask this of me. I want them to do this. I don't want them to do that. But the end of reactivity is not the goal in itself. The nature of human consciousness being what it is, it has to express itself in one way or another. When we train ourselves in not reacting, and this is, we should highlight that, right? And underline that. When we train ourselves, we have to do this. Because if we're not doing it, we are training ourselves in something else. So when we train ourselves in not reacting, we are also training ourselves in non-reactivity. Right? That's the mechanism. You train yourself to, you change something in the way you, you meet life. So when somebody is, is, um, calling you names or demanding of you or saying that you lost or whatever, that you're a loser or whatever. Not defending is healing. Not defending oneself is healing. <clears throat> that is uh, a proactive condition of being in the world. So not reacting or training ourselves in non-reactivity is a proactive condition of being in the world. That's how we take charge. Non-reactivity, rather than being passive, is an active engagement with the world as much as reactivity is, although in a completely different direction. Is that clear? Right? It's either way we are doing something. Right? It's not passive. So, so non-doing is doing. Non-doing is not being a doormat or being passive or being not caring. 
Non-doing is far greater in terms of caring than doing often, right? This is the way wu way of the Taoist. So this is the doing non-doing. Way wu way, right? You know, wu, wu way is the non-doing. But there is engagement in non-doing, which means it's shunyata operating in everyday life. So much freedom in that, as in actualizing the fundamental point, as we've heard many times. There's just one more paragraph I want to read. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. And then in the commentary, he says, the old mind is the habitual conditioned mind that operates through opinionated accumulations. Opinionated accumulations <clears throat> through internal chatter. <clears throat> it's, it's fuel is the addiction to discriminative tendencies to take and hold positions for or against each and all things. So this is our greatest addiction. <clears throat> when this mind has been deconditioned to the extent that it does not engage in discriminative thought, it is a condition of nirvana, a cessation of the old conditioned mind. In nirvana, the sense of dukkha, which was a product of the conditioned mind in the first place, has been brought to a resolution. The mind of equanimity replaces the old mind of confusion and sorrow. So that's the, uh, the end of the commentary about the paragraph we read. Uh, we got a couple of minutes uh, I think I think it's actually very clear. I'm not saying easy or difficult to do. Either one, I'm not saying. But I am saying that it is it's very clear. So you talk about slap on the face, Raison. That's what that is. That is a slap on the face. Right? Right, and that seems to be what I need. It's definitely what we need. Who's <laughs> going first? Oh, did you have your head down? Do you want to say something? No, I said, who's going first to give us a second? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. So it seems to me that to let go, to let defending drop away means to be open to pain. It includes, it includes, it means that pain will come and you will have to experience that. I would say pain will come regardless. Pain uh, will come re regardless. So, but, so the only thing, the only thing we're think, adding is the fear of the pain, mm -hmm. which is making the pain even worse. Yes. And I see that every day that I go to my wife's medical practice with the kids getting vaccination. Uh, it's, one second and they didn't notice and some they they shout all the way they keep shouting after it because they think they still didn't have it and they already got it and i've seen that many many times you know the the, the idea of of pain is way worse than the pain itself mm -hmm. at, at least i mean I, I i've seen that in in repeated ways so so that's that's what we are trying to drop it's like, yes, you're open to the pain, but to the real pain, not to the imaginary pain. Uh, 
That's where you say uh, uh, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Yeah. You get to choose how long you're going to be in pain. So, so the the. Uh it's, it's not, this is what is meant by no picking and choosing, right? You said it means also this. Mm -hmm. It means everything. Mm -hmm. It means don't pick and choose. Right? Don't identify with the opposite of what's going on. Because this is the problem. This is how we create duality. I don't want this. Here is a creation. Here, here is how duality is born. We identify with something else. Because, why? Because we don't like it. Or we identify with that because we like it. Again, we are already creating an opposite that we don't like. It's just so true, right? When we look at the way this is uh, described, right, in, this, uh, in the verse, and we look at our lives, he's talking about the way we live our lives. He's talking about our own creation of suffering. Which is good, right? Because he's talking about the way we can maybe stop doing this. We expose it and then it's like, right, look, I'm, it's not others. Right? It's not that I'm waiting for others to act. In the, I, I can take action today. I can take charge today. I can do something different today. I think it's encouraging. Anyway. Um, all right, we are wrapping it up. If you have something to say and uh, it's not formulated yet in your mind and, you, and it becomes formulated later, uh, feel free to share it uh, on, by email or maybe on Discord um, because it, it's good to keep, it, to keep the dialogue open. Okay? But thank you and uh, to be continued.
not squander your 